This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone. This is David Rutledge. And this week we're taking what I find to be just a a fascinating philosophical perspective on music and sound. Doing the research for this conversation has been a a revelation to me. I I love music. I've been involved in making music and various kinds of sound for most of my life. But on the few occasions when I've dipped my toe into the water of music philosophy, the experience has sent me scurrying back to the pure aesthetic encounter in in a big hurry. Uh, I've I've always felt that it's a little bit like what happens when people try to have serious discussions about comedy. It, It just sort of leeches all the fun out of it. But My guest this week has blown that prejudice uh, completely out of the water, and I'm very grateful to her for that. Her name is Robin James. She's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte, North Carolina. She's co-editor of the Journal of Popular Music Studies, and she's the author of a number of books, the most recent of which is The Sonic Episteme, Acoustic Resonance, Neoliberalism and Biopolitics. A lot to talk about there. Robin, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on, and thanks for your kind words about my work. I want to begin by getting you to introduce yourself, really, by cluing us into the kind of work that you're doing. Because when philosophy turns its attention to music, it's traditionally a sort of high culture exercise, questions about what constitutes music and the nature of music. These are often explored with reference to an established canon of serious music, quote-unquote. So broadly speaking, what sort of philosophical work are you doing with pop music? Or maybe I should ask, what kinds of philosophical questions does pop raise for you? I would say my philosophical background is primarily in continental feminism. So um, I came to pop music from that perspective, um, thinking, you know, this is when I was dissertating in the mid-2000s, right? And at that time, I I really saw connections between Uh, the marginalization of women and the degradation of femininity in the marginalization of women and the degradation of the stereotypically feminine characteristics of pop music, right? And a couple years later, that would, critics would know this uh, sort of revaluation of what is traditionally denigrated in pop music as poptimism, right? So in the same way that you've seen sort of the, the rise of popular feminism in the last two decades, we've also seen the rise of poptimism right? The sort of revaluing what has traditionally been devalued as too feminine. So that's kind of what drew me to pop music. But what I find valuable about pop music is I have a background, I was an oboe major in college. And so I have a background in music theory and music analysis. And music theorists focus on how a song is structured and how all its parts work. And when you listen to pop songs, there are these structures and they're usually very short. Pop songs are in the three minute long range. But if you think about it, these structures that we build pop songs with makes sense to us because sort of epistemically and ontologically, they're part of a broader system, right? A broader epistemic system or cultural system. So the philosophical questions I'm in are really about, you know, sort of why is society organized the way it is, right? Sort of political questions about equality and inequality and justice. So I look to pop music to see how pop songs are structured as a sort of microcosm of how society is structured, right? Society is big and complicated, but pop songs are three minutes long, right? So they're a much more digestible object of analysis, right? So for example, um, thinking about, you know, the sort of devaluate, I mean, Adorno is sort of famous for this, right? Devaluing pop for being superficial, for being merely interested in sort of brainless enjoyment, 
rather than deep enjoyment. But interestingly, and I talked about this in my first book, every time Adorno digs on pop music, he mentions women or women's body parts, right? So there's even in Adorno this kind of uh, very explicit uh, devaluation of pop as feminine, right? So this is that's really interesting. And I think it's an example of how I use pop music and the way people talk about it to think about these bigger picture questions in social and political philosophy, especially as tied to race and gendered identities. Right. So a, a pop song or a piece of music is a microcosm of larger social structures. And, and those structures can be oppressive and unjust and manifest in the song, even if we like the song, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. But it's not all bad, right? Like songs are also a place where people try to renegotiate those structures. And that's something I try to focus on in my work, right? Like, you know, there's that Foucault Adorno meme where Foucault says, I'm not saying everything is bad. I'm saying everything is dangerous. (laughs) Um, It's kind of that, right? Like, yes, there's bad dimensions of this. But, you know, Stuart Hall says that, you know, pop culture is neither inherently capitalist nor inherently anti-capitalist. It's the site of class struggle, right? And that's how I view pop music, right? Like that's where these power relationships are negotiated uh, on both ends. I mean, there's a sense, I think, in the mainstream philosophy community, the academic philosophy community, that that pop is unworthy of sustained philosophical scrutiny. And uh, do you think that your work exists in an awkward relationship to what's happening in philosophy, in academic philosophy elsewhere? And has that been a problem for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So like I mentioned earlier, my background is in continental feminism. So you know, even from when I was an undergrad, I sort of knew that I was existing on the fringes of the field as it was. So why not just put myself further out on the fringe and write about pop music? Um, so I, you know, kind of speaking to the mainstream of the discipline was not something that I was ever especially concerned with. And what I found is that there's an interdisciplinary field of music scholarship called popular music studies that draws from, you know, music studies, but also there's people in English literature, there's people in cultural studies, sociology, and I think my work fits there really well, right? Because I'm using popular music in an interdisciplinary way to think about theoretical questions. Um, sometimes I tell people I'm kind of like, imagine Lydia Gare, but Beyonce and feminism, <laughs> right? So it, it is... My approach, I think, is definitely not a common one in philosophy, but I think because I'm sort of engaged with, uh, you know, certain bodies of literature in continental feminism and the critical philosophy of race, that like my work has had uptake there, right? And I'm in in those sorts of conversations, and those have been really, really productive. But yeah, I've kind of known that I don't do philosophy of music as it is traditionally conceived, in part because that subfield has been so resistant to questions about politics and those questions are the center of my work so i just kind of had to find the people who wanted to be in conversation with me um and that's been really rewarding yeah i mean the other interesting thing about philosophy of music i think and and the interesting thing about your work is that it takes music out of this privileged aesthetic sphere that philosophy of music often wants to put it in you know i mean i i love many kinds of music but i also find certain kinds of music really horrible not just because it's not my cup of tea or questionable lyrics or whatever but because certain kinds of music seem to embody certain things about society or culture that i find repellent mm-hmm. you know it's like there's something in the dna of the music that's problematic and your work seems to allow for that kind of response, whereas other kinds of music philosophy sort of take it for granted that music and sound are just ethically unproblematic. Is, is that sort of a difference that you, that you would identify? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, in part, that difference sort of originally came from just my experience as a musician and sort of someone who studied music academically, right? Like, music is a part of society, and we live in a society with many problems, <laughs> right? And music is going to not be somehow inherently separate from those problems. But there's also scholarship in sound studies uh, that sort of talks about this tendency to romanticize music or idealize music as ethically or morally unproblematic because it is supposedly so different from philosophy. So uh, there's a sound studies scholar at McGill in Canada named Jonathan Stern. He's in the media studies department there, and he uh, coined this phrase called the audiovisual litany. And uh, that what he means by that is that we in the West going all the way back to Plato, tend to uh, view sound and vision or sound and like verbal text as opposites, right? So the idea is that Western philosophy is both ocular-centric and text-centric. And if text and vision are traditionally seen as the opposite of sound and music, well, if text and, you know, whatever's bad about philosophy must be because it's textual or visual. So therefore, music must be good, right? So that's that's the sort of the litany, right? Um, text and vision, bad, limited, the opposite of whatever it is must be good, but that's not always, that. in fact, that's not really ever the case, right? It, just because it's different doesn't mean that it's not also structured by some of the same epistemic and ontological systems that structure our ways of seeing and our ways of knowing, right? Music and sound are just other ways of perceiving and knowing within that same ontological or epistemological regime, if that makes sense. Right? Like there's certain ways of seeing in modernity and there's also certain ways of listening and there's certain ways of seeing under neoliberalism and there's also certain ways of listening. Okay, so, so we've been talking in a sort of a general sense of how music and sound can uh, carry and reflect or embody oppressive frameworks of, of certain kinds. Let's get down to an example of the kind of thing that we're talking about, maybe with reference to Resilience and Melancholy, which was the wonderful sure. book you had published in 2015. That one focuses on feminism and neoliberalism in pop. What's the general thesis there? Yeah, so this um, was sort of uh, written right after the kind of uh, popular feminism moment in, move in, in pop music, right? Beyonce in 2013 had her big feminist performance. And so I was thinking about how white liberal feminism was telling this tale of overcoming, right? Take all the damage that patriarchy has done to you. And if you individually overcome it, you can become, you know, the girl boss of your dreams, basically. <laughs> right? So uh, the idea was that, you know, feminism is great because it helps individual women overcome their specific limitations, not because it's a systemic you know, response to, to patriarchy, right? So I was thinking about resilience discourse within contemporary feminism. Um, but then, you know, right around that same time, this is when um, the kind of the EDM bubble happened and, and EDM kind of took over American pop music in a way that it never had before. And there was this um, structure taken from dubstep where it was quite explicitly about sort of pushing either volume or rhythmic intensity or timbral intensity in this sort of Zeno's paradox-like way up to the purported limit of human hearing. And then, right, so you're sort of breaking something only to come back stronger, right? So I was like, hmm, that sounds a lot like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, you know, uh, or Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago, uh, former Barack Obama uh, chief of staff said, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? So I was interested in how this idea of turning damage into profit 
was manifest as this musical structure in in pop music, right? Um, and and I saw that sort of analogous logic within both sort of you know cultural discourse generally, feminism specifically, but here it is also structuring pop songs. That's so interesting. So so I mean, the, the more obvious thing is to look at the lyrics, right? And the the sort of you know the way the resilience discourse comes out in that whole kind of you go girl inspirational message yeah. that the song is explicitly putting out. But you're focusing on the sound and the compositional structure of the song. That's in some ways that I think that's more interesting, or at least more unexpected. Tell me a bit more about that. I mean, how musical sound and structure can can reproduce neoliberal ideologies, and also what that means for feminism. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to backtrack a little bit because there's a great article by aesthetician L. Ryan Musgrave called Liberal Feminism from Law to Art that's in Hypatia. Uh, And she talks about why we tend to think the political content of artworks is in what they say or what they visually represent, right? And it has to do with sort of American uh, feminist legal scholarship in the 70s and the reference to certain legal particularities of the U.S. Bill of Rights, right? So there's there's real philosophical reasons why we tend to think that the political dimension of music is in the words and not in the sounds. Uh, so I think that's an interesting point. But as someone with training in music theory, right, I know that structures matter, right? Like how the music works matters, right? Like that's what makes it pleasurable musically rather than just as a poem, for example, right? So... Um, there's plenty of ways that sounds can be political. I have a, a piece at uh, the Sound Studies publication sounding out on uh, Black women rappers' use of extraverbal sound, right? So like Missy Elliott, uh, Nicki Minaj, they're really well known for, you know, uh, like Missy Elliott does, right? And there I argue that what they're doing is they're, um, the making of those sounds is fun and pleasurable, right? And it's a way to think about uh, corporal pleasure, perhaps even gendered or sexualized corporal pleasure that isn't how we traditionally think of gender or sexual pleasure because it's not related to typically gendered body parts. So that's another way that that sounds can be political or do political work. And so a lot of my work is really just sort of emphasizing that that what we hear matters. That's why this is music and not something else. So let's take those sounds seriously. It makes me think of something that I mean, I've been getting in, interested in, in U.S. gun culture lately, and I've, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos of where yeah. some guy, you know, takes his AR-15 out into the woods and starts blasting away. Um, a lot of promotional gun videos as well. And it's it's amazing how many of these videos use exactly the same kind of music. Like as soon as the bullets start flying, they cue up that that cheesy sort of light metal, you know, with a sort of shreddy, squiggly lead guitar. Yeah. I've, always, I've always really hated that music, but it is, it's not that I just don't care for the particular genre. It, it's also the way that the music in and of itself seems to embody and to enact a certain kind of pathological masculinity. Is that, I mean, and I'm not sure whether that's just, you know, a sort of a, you know, intellectualized aesthetic response or if it's getting to the kind of thing that you're talking about there. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm really glad you asked it because there's actually like a media history reason for this. So in the U.S., the Telecommunications Act of 1996 deregulated radio ownership. So that's when you had like Clear Channel, which is now iHeartRadio, sort of buying up multiple stations across the U.S. and sort of syndicating the same content on stations, you know, all over the place, right? So, and that was also the time when alt-rock was really big. So you had this alt-rock radio bubble where, you know, there were people just putting syndicated alt-rock all over the place. Well, that bubble burst. And so in the late 90s, alt-rock is trying to save itself. And what it does is it says, okay, well, women 
are more likely to defect to pop stations. So we're going to double down on, you know, sort of narrow casting to this very narrow and stereotypical group of white men. And they do that by playing, you know, rock music that embodies stereotypically masculine and white characteristics, right? Like the sort of hardness, the heaviness, the the nickelbackiness of it, right? (laughs) So what that did was it just sort of amplified those gendered associations that the music already had, because those stations were narrow casting for just white men, 18 to 34. Uh, uh, Chris Malamphy, the Slate critic, calls it the broified alt-rock. So, so what you're hearing there is actually the result of a very intentional gendering of that kind of music. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really fascinating point to bring up, right? And it's also fascinating, again, that like, why is this the music being used in these gun commercials? Right? What are these gun commercials trying to say about who these guns are for and who sees themselves in that commercial? You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and I'm talking about music and sound this week with Robin James from the University of North Carolina. She's doing some really interesting work in the field of pop and the ways in which our social structures are reflected in the structures of pop music. The most recent book, The Sonic Episteme, is highly recommended and we'll put publication details on the Philosopher's Zone website. So getting back to what you write about in Resilience and Melancholy, we've talked about the resilience part. What about melancholy? What do you mean exactly by that term and how do you see it playing out in contemporary pop? Yeah, I'm going to actually kind of use this as a chance to move forward a little in time, right? So like in 2015, that was definitely kind of the moment of resilience, right? Um, Kelly Clarkson even had a song, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger, right? (laughs) But by the middle of the 2010s, we started seeing like chill and lo-fi become more popular. Like you might be familiar with the lo-fi study beats or lo-fi hip hop beats to study relax to YouTube channel. And that's kind of the what I would call the the co-optation of melancholy, right? So in my book, I talked about how the idea of caring for yourself rather than overcoming in a profitable way, I called that melancholy, right? Melancholy is the failure to get over, right? Because Freud makes that distinction, right? Mourning is when you get over a loss and melancholy is the inability to get over a loss. And I said, well, maybe, you know, there are some things that we shouldn't individually get over. Like, I don't think patriarchy is something I can individually get over, right? I can only do that collectively. So um, I think what happened then was we got this sort of co-optation of melancholy into chill, right? Chill is what people do to be productive while the world is crumbling, (laughs) right? Um, And there's, you know, if you go on any of the streaming services, there's multiple chill playlists. Like you can get chill in any genre. You can get chill jazz, chill piano music, chill country, whatever. So I think even this idea or this concept of chill is a way of of expressing another sort of um, evolution in what would I call it neoliberal subjectivity, right? So it's not just enough for people to overcome, but you have to persist and be productive amid some very scary circumstances. You know, the pandemic has certainly amplified that for many people, right? Um, We're facing overwhelming circumstances, yet we still have to go to work, take care of the family, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the thing about the lo-fi, chill, steady beats thing is, as I understand it, it's 
more or less explicitly associated with with work, right? It's it's music that you play while you mm-hmm. get work done. Yeah, and it's um, I have a colleague who's um, she has a PhD in musicology, but she's also a startup CEO, and she noticed that the kind of work represented is typically coding, right? Or at least work that you're seated at a laptop, right? So this is not music that I'm gonna like clean my house to. <laughs> right? It's not physical work. It's definitely intellectual labor. So it's a certain class of people even that it's speaking to. So what's happened to resilience then? Has that discourse of resilience sort of gone out the window? Has it has it just sort of morphed into something else? Oh, I think it's still there. But I think what we're seeing is a sort of class stratification, right? We're all expected to, you know, have overcome. So um, in uh, studying uh, Taylor Swift and Ariana Grande's use of that same musical device that I talk about in Resilience and Melancholy in their You Need to Calm Down and uh, Thank You Next video, I show how they use that structure, but they sort of tone it down as much as possible. So there's this new sort of figure of the sort of privileged white feminist who has already overcome, right? Like all that is behind me. You know, I'm so successful. There's nothing holding me back. What would I need to overcome versus uh, less privileged women who, you know, still certainly face perceptible impediments and are compelled still to to be resilient rather than to seek systemic solutions um, to their problems. So that that sort of difference between what I call the the chill girl, right? So the cool girl is a sort of classic figure of like the you know pretty and hot, but uh, one of the guys, right? That's the figure of the cool girl. So I'm using this idea of the figure of the chill girl as a sort of update of the cool girl of like the sort of privileged white feminist who positions herself above the struggles of of regular women with patriarchy. There's something really interesting that you write about in the Sonic Episteme, and that's the way that sound has been used in recent years by philosophers and theorists as a, a sort of avatar or metaphor for something that can cure some of the ills of modernity like if we if we theorize things in terms of sound and vibration rather than text and visuals which we were talking about earlier then we can reclaim some of the materiality and felt experience that philosophy mm-hmm. so often distances us from let's talk a bit about that i mean what what's wrong with that notion in your view yeah so that's you find that in places like adriana cavarero's work on voice or in some um, new materialisms Right, that talk about like vibration and diffraction, which are all basically sort of resonant, you know, p- periodic relationships, like a, a wave relationship. So what's wrong with that is what I call it's an idealized theory of sound, or it's a theory of sound that claims to be quote unquote objective and doesn't account for the fact that all ways of knowing are always structured by power relations, right? So this idealized account of sound basically sort of takes what contemporary physics understands sound to be and sort of naturalizes it as the sort of inherent nature of sound and thus overlooks the ways that, um, you know, um, so Erica Fretwell's work, she's um, in literature at Albany. She has a, a chapter in her book, Sensory Experiments on Helmholtz's theory of hearing and in, in, in experiments, right? So Helmholtz was uh, one of the researchers in the 19th century that, you know, sort of really uh, was foundational to modern notions of sound and acoustics, right? And she shows how his theory of sound was also grounded in this idea that only white people had the proper sensitivity to sound to genuinely hear, right? So our theories of sound, even though they might be sort of objective physics, they're rooted in science that is, you know, far from 
apolitical. So these purportedly value-free theories of sound are not value-free. So to, if we want to think about and theorize from sound, we have to understand it in a non-ideal way, right? And I'm using, you know, thinking about Charles Mills here and his ideal theory is ideology piece, right? So thinking about something in a non-ideal way means understanding that, you know, we live in a world structured by systemic inequality and that systemic inequality shapes everything. And again, this goes back to the, the sort of stereotype that Western philosophy is ocular-centric and text-centric, right? So sound is the sort of excluded other of that. So people have tended to view music's traditional exclusion from Western philosophy or stereotypical otherness from Western philosophy as something that can recuperate the tradition, right? If you, if you merely include what has traditionally been excluded, right, you will fix all the problems. But as we can see with corporate white feminism, right, <laughs> that's not all, right? It's not just a merely a matter of including some people who have been traditionally excluded, but it's a matter of, of undoing the oppressive structures at a systemic level. So what we've been talking about and, and, and what you're writing about in the sonic episteme is, is, is that there are ways of theorizing sound and producing sound that serve to reproduce certain neoliberal hierarchies and inequalities. But one thing that we discover over and over again about neoliberalism is how hard it is to avoid complicity in those unjust structures. Like just going out and buying anything ever <laughs> means that you're contributing yeah. to someone's oppression somewhere. Is it similarly difficult to theorize or to produce sound and music in ways that are truly emancipatory and, and that don't just rehearse the same old gendered or, or racialized ways of thinking? I really like to think about Alexis Shotwell's Against Purity here, right? So in that book, she argues, you know, this is actually sort of part of white racial logics and sort of Christian ideas of, of purity, right, have really informed uh, Western notions of ethics and morality, right? You know, Beauvoir is also kind of in the background here in the ethics of ambiguity, right? So Beauvoir says, every action is both for men and against them, right? By being for men, you will be against some others. So I think there's this tradition in feminist philosophy that really recognizes that there is no purely good or liberatory action, right? So Beauvoir's thinking about, you know, World War II and, you know, literally fighting teenage Nazis. And she's like, okay, you know, in being for liberation, you are going to have to be against people and do violence for people. And um, Devin Shaw has a, he's a Canadian philosopher. He has a, a great book sort of using that part of Beauvoir to think about revolutionary violence, right? Like, is it okay to punch a Nazi sort of questions? And I think that's kind of how I see the making and listening to of music, right? Like, it's going to be both for and against, right? You're never going to fully extract yourself from these problematic systems and relations. But again, sort of thinking back to that Stuart Hall quote I mentioned earlier, right? Pop music is a site of struggle over these issues. And I think what matters is that struggle. And in the best cases, I think pop music, both the practice of it, the listening of it, the sharing of it, can produce what I like to think of as kind of pocket universes, where we have a bit of a reprieve, right? Away from all the bad stuff. And those, those, those moments of reprieve are really important because they're also moments of community and solidarity where you can build the relationships and the trust with other people that are essential in the fight against oppressive systems. 
Robin James, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She's co-editor of the Journal of Popular Music Studies, and she's the author of a bunch of books. You can find publication details on our website. That's The Philosopher's Zone, and you can stream or download this and all of our past programs anytime via the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge. Bye for now.